This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Hey everyone, I'm pumped about this week's podcast. We have Bob Fibbs, who is the retail doc. Bob works with the retailers associates and helps the people who actually work in the store and connect with the customers, make more sales that convert. And so he brings a really interesting perspective to the podcast and his story is about his time as a store manager in a growing Western wear chain in the early 90s or in the early 80s. Really excited about that. Just got back from Norfolk, Virginia, which was a really productive trip. Got to meet with some clients, you know, look at the market. Uh, The whole Tidewater area was really cool. Stayed in downtown Norfolk. Over the next couple of months, I have a pretty robust travel schedule. I was with my teammates and as business travelers do, we were talking about working out on the road. It's not easy. Missed a significant amount of workout time because I left my workout clothes at home, um, making it a mission to make sure that I bring all my workout clothes with me, no matter how busy of a schedule, if I think I'm going to get a workout in or not. I packed my running shoes, some mesh shorts, and a t-shirt to make sure that I can get a workout in on the road. So anyway, hope you enjoy the show this week. Thanks, everyone. Welcome everyone to the show. Today we have Bob Fibbs, CEO of The Retail Doctor. Bob works with retail clients, both small and large, to help with the human experience in the store. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks, glad to be here, Chris. So you just got back from NRF. You were on a panel of the National Retail Federation's big conference. You know, how was the conference and how was your panel? Conference was packed. I think there's more hope at NRF than there has been in previous years. I think um, everybody's trying to figure all of it out. It all comes down to data. We're all trying to figure out what is AI going to be help or um, just another thing to do. I think some smart um, solution providers are out there doing everything from understanding where you place your store in the mall, in the center, or in the community. I think people are figuring out the customer journey and understanding uh, how many baskets does somebody want? And the overriding thing is um, every retailer is like, I don't need nine apps. If you can't do it in one or you don't play nice with other ones, I don't want to do it. So simplifying all those processes is really a big deal. And my panel was standing room only. So that's always great. As we announced my partnership with Exonify, the world's leading uh, computer assisted uh, training platform to bring all of my 30 years of training and working in retail to a whole new generation and a whole new uh, 
group of retailers. So um, it was great and they were very interested because training is something that most people feel, A, doesn't matter, they don't need it. And the one thing I keep coming, well, the two things I keep coming back to is how many sales that should have been yours walked out the door to a competitor. And then understanding that people only do what they remember. So it's not that they were trained. You can expose somebody to it. I can say, Chris, you know, we're watching Wimbledon and you see Serena Williams. You're like, I could do that. I was like, dude, seriously, you could not do that. You understand it. But until you've actually done a backhand for 300,000 times, your body is not doing it. Your body won't remember it. Your mind will try to remember it, but you got to get it into the body. And so until that happens, no one's trained. So a lot of people were a little shell shocked to find out like, holy crap, I've been doing this wrong. And I was like, well, yeah, what can I tell you? <laughs> and that's where I come in, the retail doc. So it all worked perfectly. So the retail doc. So what do you guys do specifically when you're helping uh, all these retailers? So I am probably the uh, most articulate voice of the customer you can find. So I will look at what is the experience when I'm in your store and then you match it up to what it could be and then you come up with a branded experience and then you pretty much craft what this branded experience should look like and then come up with a plan to execute it. But I also do business makeovers for the LA times and I've done business makeovers, which are much more intense, which is, you know, Chris, you're doing it all wrong. We have to go to the studs and start over. And that's a very different makeover. And then there's other times it's just, it's people, uh, you know, big brands will bring me into work with their conferences or the dealer network or their individual boutiques and say, um, I like your philosophy. You know, what do you think? And I say, all I care about is conversions, how many shoppers became buyers and how much of your, is your crew adding on? And then we unpack those statistics and then you say, okay, so then what do we do to do that? And if you can make a six point turnaround in three months, like with a major retailer, that's serious money that goes back into either the investors of the store or actually the owners. So it, everybody wins. And that, that that's totally true. It's really, really interesting perspective. Who are some of your clients? Give people some perspective. So uh, I have worked for everyone from uh, American Express to uh, to Lego, to Vera Bradley, to Omega Timepieces, to Seiko, to uh, Do It Best Hardware, True Value, to Hunter Douglas, one of my biggest accounts, Hunter Douglas Window Fashions, to Rockford Fosgate, which is one of my newest clients. Uh, they do mobile electronics in cars and boats and any kind of transportation you can think of. Uh, so the the thing that I do is it doesn't matter what the product is. I'm not a product guy. Does that make sense? So yeah. whatever you're selling, there's a better way probably, or a more human way, or a way to get that employee or associate or sales rep to open their heart to the other person first before expecting the other person to like them, because that's the way it works. It's the opposite of social media. You know, social media, like, nah, do I like this guy? Nah, I'm not gonna let him, ah, the guy beat me up when I was in sixth grade, I'm not gonna follow. But nowadays, you gotta say, oh, I've gotta like, I've gotta find some way to like this guy before I get them to put down their wall and let me let them trust me so I make the sale so there's a real reason you have to figure that out and let's face it most people a don't know how to do that and b have never seen it so young people they love to learn they're positive they're hopeful they take to this really well the challenge is making holding them accountable not just to learn it but to actually use it that is a 
analogy or a, a phrase I haven't heard. It's the opposite of social media. Uh, do you say that a lot to your clients? Uh, uh, no, but it, it just seemed to fit this morning. I mean, I will be using it now that you've noticed it. <laughs> I have noticed it. So uh, given I spend a lot of time on social media, it resonated with me. I'll add one more thing. Um, I was talking to James Ree. He's the dynamic CEO of Ashley Stewart. An amazing story. If your listeners don't know it, you should actually uh, Google James Ree, R-H-E-E, and how he took this struggling brand and revamped it into a whole new way. A amazing story. But uh, we're chatting yesterday, and he says, I, I said, you know, he's asked me how the show was. And I said, you know, I think it's not about customer engagement. It's really got to be associate engagement. And he goes, yeah, I'm calling it, um, we're, we're going definitely offline with everything we're looking at in 2020. It's all going to be about people. And I thought that was really interesting that we're not looking for another technology to bring in or another payment solution. It's all going to be based on the offline what's happening in our stores and you know again he's a brilliant guy he's got he's got a great story so check them out will do well you spend a lot of time with store associates and working with you know major retailers small retailers and their store associates how did that start well tell us about your background a little bit where you know how did the retail doc start born in 19 fit <laughs> uh yeah, I don't know how far back you want to go, but, you know, I was in California. I'm pretty much a California boy. That's why I say dude probably more than you uh, <laughs> might be used to. And uh, I live in New York only for 10 years. So um, when I grew up, I, you know, we, we were, uh, we didn't, I didn't have an allowance or anything. So I, I did things like I would sell things door to door or I would, you know, mow lawns or I would do anything to get money because I didn't have an allowance. And I put myself through college, through selling shoes. And then ultimately this little Western store opened up and it was before your time, but uh, Western was huge in the eighties. There's, there's a show called Dallas. There was one called dynasty and this whole allure. Ralph Lauren was just coming on board. Reagan came on board as a cowboy. I mean, there was this whole thing in the eighties about cowboy wear. So I was like, well, this looks like a trend I could ride. So I did built, took this little group of stores about six to 55 in a series of 14 years and we're at a meeting and the owner uh, one day asked everybody, you know, what's a company's greatest asset? And of course I'm, that's easy. Uh, it's employees. And he goes wrong. I was like, wrong. I was just like, well, this will be interesting. So he asked other people, no one gets it right. Finally he goes, it's customers. I'm like, huh? Hmm. And so after the meeting, I went downstairs and I said, um, yeah, it's always been the way I've run all my stores is, it's always been about the people and shoppers are going to go anywhere. They're not loyal to us. They're loyal to a variety of things, price, location, all that. And this is back in 94. And I said, uh, I can't work for a company that doesn't respect that. I'm out in two weeks. So then I quit. Don't know really what I'm going to do. Take some time off. And after about three months, I decided to go to a Tony Robbins seminar there in uh, Los Angeles. And Tony, the one thing that really stood out is he said, you better come up with a brand. Nobody can do better. And I went home and I filed the trademark for the retail doctor uh, the very next morning. And uh, and I had a little consultant, consulting company for a little bit. And then I had one client that I was able to, uh, that's what made me very famous. So I don't know if you want to hear that story, but you could cut here if you have to. <laughs> Got it. Who was the client? Uh, it's a little company called Polly's Gourmet Coffee in Long Beach, California.
Awesome. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a really cool story. I, I think you're the first person I've had on the podcast that grew up with and growing a Western stores chain. So that is unique. And probably will only be the one. But I will share one thing with you that if you look at almost any successful CEO or entrepreneur, they all trace an experience in their young lives working retail where they had to learn it was about a customer, learning about somebody else before they get what they want. And that's the ones, the ones who struggle and don't get it. They never had that experience. They don't understand it. And so they think it's still all about them. And that's that's a huge differentiator for if you're not for listening to this that it always has to be about somebody. The customers always got to have the seat at the table and some do it physically. You know, to this day, there are CEOs that actually have an empty chair at their boardroom table when they're talking about uh, products to remember that this is the customer who is here and are we really serving them? Because if we don't serve them, then ultimately they're going to go to somebody who else does, who else does, somebody else who does a great, better job. The empty chair. I haven't heard that one. So, so one of the things I think is interesting today, you know, you mentioned it's all about the people. How how are retailers doing recruiting people into management training programs and store associates in today's environment? Are, are millennials going to school, graduating and wanting to build a career in retail? And, and how's that either opportunity or struggle for retailers? Well, the great lie, I think, uh, being told always is that retail is a low playing loser job. And so you know, um, when I, uh, and when I first, uh, was starting out when I was 16, I was like, I have to get out of this. Right. And I kept thinking this experience will never help me. All these things that I'm doing will never help me. I was going to be a, a conductor and I wanted to conduct on Broadway. That's what I was going to get my degree in. And then the fallback to that was you had to teach. You would have been a great conductor. I am a great conductor. I had <laughs> my own chorus, uh, an orchestra in, uh, Los Angeles for 15 years. And then I retired. But it became my hobby. I knew I wasn't going to make money at that. And so um, uh, I've lost train of thought there. Sorry. Where were we going with that? Store store associates uh, coming from college. So the lie was that no one makes money at retail. And yeah, if you if you don't do your job and you're at minimum wage, it's a tough place. But almost every great retailer, you look at Walmart, you look at Target, you look at Macy's, you look at all these brands, they understand that that tribal knowledge of our systems and who we are and actually having known who our customer is, really matter. I was on the panel that you mentioned with uh, Tony Aversa. He is the head of customer service at Foot Locker. He has 39,000 employees he's responsible for. He started out as a part-time guy on the sales floor 30-some years ago. And that experience that is what is what brings value to him and to that organization. So, you know, there are people that make ten, hundreds of thousands of dollars still working retail who realize, oh, I can hook onto this train and do really well. I think um, the the always the challenge for, for even when I was young many years ago is you think it's a part time job, it's a thing to get through, it's a it's a band aid on the way to your career, and for that reason they don't invest in it, and so for that reason retailers don't typically invest in it either, right? So you leave them on their own, and you pretty much say, well, you're worthless to me. And, and and nothing happens. The smart ones have created a path, right? How to take on additional leadership responsibilities, how to develop them as leaders, how to give them more um, stature, how to give them more rewards, and then walks them up the chain. I think the ones that struggle still have this attitude that um, all all good talent comes from outside, especially at the top. I think that's the hardest part. You know, when you hire people over people who are in your organization, 
what usually happens is you're bringing somebody else's culture into yours. So you do that enough times, there's no real culture for yours. It's a mishmash of, of whatever is left over, and it may not even be good culture. It's just culture. So I would encourage anybody, uh, no matter how big or small you are, is just to realize that you know you get about as much out of people as you put into them. That's sage advice. So who's got a great management training program out there today? Lululemon's got an amazing program. Lululemon's been around for, geez, what, 20 years, I guess? And from the start. <clears throat> well, that, it, clearly it shows in their numbers, right? Absolutely. Uh, from the start, they every Sunday night, they have a store meeting with all the associates and uh, the manager. And they go through and come up with their goals. These are all personal goals. has zero to do with the brand. And yet it has everything to do with the brand. And so they're talking about how to help them make goals. They're talking about connections. And the whole goal is to make them a better person, have a better life. And so if you ascribe to that, you are going to love working for Lua Lemon, right? You're going you're gonna to be really productive. I think Rituals, who I was just in in uh, New York, they are an amazing cosmetics company. And one of the things they do so differently is that when you're hired, you get an app apparently that um, you log in and start learning about all the other people on your team and their favorite products before you ever begin on the sales floor. So again, it, it's coming down to, oh, an associate matters, and we've got to find a way quickly to let them feel like they belong. Going b back a little bit to what I was saying before, are they struggling to bring people in and keep them in the system? Oh, to bring in? Everybody's struggling with unemployment at 3%, you know. Sure, yeah. Kind of a lie because a lot of people are working two and three jobs at a time. It's not necessarily full-time work. So everybody's got that problem. So, you know, yes, they're still doing the referral, having friends try to refer others. But the smart ones are actually going out and beating the bushes because, frankly, you know, if I put an ad online right now, I will instantly get tens of thousands of bots that will apply for the job. And how do you sort through that? You really can't. But what you can do is when you're in your trade area, you're around five, five miles around your store, you could certainly go to different coffee houses, restaurants, ask if they want to pick up any additional hours. There's a million ways you could do it. But the smart ones are out there literally like a baseball team uh, in, in the farm system, going out and looking, where can we get these people? And again, it's very intense, but the quality of their leads is much better than just putting something out and saying we pay $11 an hour or something. Yeah, the, the, no matter what you're trying to, to sell, you need to go and get it. So whether it's recruiting of people, selling a product, uh, you know, that, that's where you're going to find the best opportunities, not just sitting around and waiting. So that makes sense. I, I, I hadn't thought of the, the retailer, you know, going and scouring the, you know, market, but that makes sense. I don't know why that wouldn't be the case. So, you know, good perspective. Well, pivoting a little bit, as you know, that this is a show about how that store ended up in your neighborhood and wanted to see what story you brought to the table today, Bob, and where we're going location-wise or geographically. Do you have a story for us on uh, how a store ended up somewhere? Well, I'll pick one. So back when I was first starting selling cowboy clothes, so they realized pretty soon that the malls were going to be the way forward. Before this, they had all done uh, strip centers, and yep. that was where they had done. And the numbers that came back when they opened a store in the mall were so astronomically, just the conversions were so much higher that the same merch brought into a mall would 
return so much more value. So is this store still around today? They went bankrupt after I left. Not a surprise. What, not a surprise. What was the name of the chain? Uh, it was called Howard and Phil's out in Los Angeles. Got it. All right, keep going. So they um, they had made the decision that um, there was a store down in Tustin that had been there, a, a steady player, had been there for a couple of years. And the decision was made, they were going to move it to Pasadena. And I was looking to get my first store and it was going to be my store. So it's like, great, they're just going to transfer this up there. And it's, uh, my goodness, when is this? This is like uh, November-ish of... 1980 before you were even born and um so i said well everything is you know ready to go right the store's ready to go no we got to get the inventory up and this was like on a monday and we opened on a thursday and i said well um what's going to happen well on tuesday you're going to go down and you're going to take a truck and we're literally just going to take everything out and bring it up there to get going and then we'll figure it out from there i was like okay <laughs> right absolutely everything's ready to go so i get in the truck we drive, it's like an hour south of, of LA and you, we get to the store and uh, knock on the door. And and so real quick, the, the, the store is in Tustin and you're moving from a strip center, Tustin to pass it to the mall. And how big are these stores? 5,000. 5,000. And they're not small. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, but it's, but, um, so I, you got, you got to open the store quick and you knock on the door of the store. In I Tustin. knocked on the back door and. This young woman asked her, she goes, oh, it's not our day for delivery. I go, oh, we're not here for delivery. We're here to, you know, take everything out of the store, right? Like you knew. She goes, what do you mean? So what do you mean? What do I mean? So <laughs> I walk into the store and the store is open. They're waiting on customers. <clears throat> and the manager looks at me and goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I said, weren't you told this is the day we're shutting down? No one told us. Oh, my God. So I said, well, then I guess what you need to do is to take all the money out of the register and go to the bank and deposit it lock the doors and uh, help me load a truck. Uh, what's going to happen to me and our crew is like, I don't know the answer to that. I can do this part. You'll have to call them. So all that drama is going on. We get the truck loaded. We get up to Pasia on, on Tuesday night. So there are so many pants that we didn't really account for that. I just said, just put them in a, in a, just put them on the floor over there. And this, this, this mound that ended up being there was easily, easily five feet tall. Oh my God. Least as wide in the middle of the back of the store. And uh, with still on their hangers and some that were folded and, you know, jeans and dress pants and the whole thing. And, uh, and then somebody said, well, we can't open with all that. I said, the hell with it. We're going to open with it. I said, if nothing else, I can at least, um, you know, if we're looking for something, at least I know it's here, right? right. It makes sense <laughs> to send it back up to the warehouse. So we opened and that, that stack of pants was probably there for a, a good month because uh, we had to sell through it um, and, and get, as we could get up to it. So would I recommend any retailer do that? Absolutely not. But the <laughs> other side of it is, you know, you just, you just have to get practical when you're opening a store. The goal is get the store open, right? If I get anyone interested in the merch, that's a plus. And we ended up hitting it out of the park just in the two weeks we were open. Uh, had more than tripled the amount of business that little store had done in a whole month. So it was pretty crazy. Wow. And the store you were moving to, was it like move-in ready? You just moved all the merchandise in? Yeah, we the the shell had been done and all of the all the fixtures uh most of the fixtures were there. 
Um, and, and then we had to kind of decide how many of them could we bring in from the old store because they're the, the whole footprint was different. It was a smaller store, no two ways about it. Um, the mall store, but it was a great time. It was very fun. And, you know, I was young. I was, uh, geez, that was, I was probably like 22 or something. So, you know, you worked all night to get the stuff out and it was very exciting to get the crew there. And when we opened, I think we had one of those riding bulls out, uh, in the mall that you could ride, you know, nowadays <laughs> they would never do that because of been liability and all sorts of things, but, uh, it was a good time. Awesome. So you end up going from, you end up going, you're working for this as an associate. They're going to give you a store to run and you got to drive down and unbeknownst to new, you got to tell this woman in Tustin that actually I'm, you're fired. I'm taking your store and I'm moving it to Pasadena and you're literally moving it. You have a truck with merchandise or truck empty that you got to fill with the merchandise of this store, bring it up to Pasadena and unload it out of the truck and fill up the store. And by Thursday, wow. Did you have employees hired already? I I did, but they weren't going to start till Wednesday because we really didn't know uh, there was, you know, the, the, the certificate of occupancy was in doubt, if I remember correctly. That was part of the problem that they just kept being pushed off. And put, even though the shell was done and we were ready to go and this lighting was ready, it wasn't just they just wouldn't give us the sign off for something. So good times. Got it. Yeah, great times. Well, uh, that's an interesting story. Cool perspective from uh a, st a former store manager, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure e even today I'm still aware there's a lot of associates who in certain places that help, you know, get the store up and running and merchandise the store and all that stuff. I think it's a, I think it's still, uh, it's not done like that, but there's still, a, a, a <laughs> there's still a lot of store associates that help in that process when that's going on. So. Absolutely. And it's, that's all, it's all really fun too. Cause it's a, it's a kind of a race against the clock. That's what makes it fun. And uh, they're learning the merchandise they're putting out. They're asking questions. Um, you're training them as you're doing it. So it, it all works. It's just um, really high stress. I would definitely not do that at my age. I'll tell you that. What type of volume was uh, Harry and Phil's doing? Howard and Phil's. Howard and Phil's. Yeah. I don't think they would even be comparable to, to understand today because retail, now the numbers are probably three times as great just from the net nature of what malls became because the Passio Mall was um, pretty new. The Glendale Galleria was pretty new. The Santa Monica Place Mall, which uh, Rich Gary had designed, same guy did Disney Hall and a lot of fancy buildings. So it was really, uh, really on the cusp of a new mall culture. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, appreciate the story. You know, if you're going to, if, if you were going to give your, you know, your pulse on the market in your Twitter message of 280 characters or less. What, what, what's go, what's the real state of retail today? <laughs> 280 characters. <laughs> there is no retail apocalypse. Bad retailers, beige retailers are going out of business light and left and right. The value customer is being courted more than the luxury customer, which is driving a lot of demand at the low end, but it's a punishing place to play. And um, the real estate, if you look at the amount of unsold real estate in, in New York City, it's a harbinger for what's going to happen across America. As more people move to online, as we, we 
kind of say, well, some people have said that online is going to be the hub and I am on the opposite side of it. The smart retailers understand the brick and mortar store is the hub of the retail empire and everything goes out from there. But regardless, um, they have to figure out what, this is way beyond 280 characters, but just understanding why would somebody put down their phone, draft past three competitors to come to you? If you're Lululemon, if you're Target, if you're Walmart, it's all coming down to convenience, it's coming down to connections, it's coming down to buy online, pick up in store. All of that has a lot of technology underneath it. So if you don't have the technology to serve the, us in the way we want, which is to be able to buy online, in-app, in-store, on social, return it where, however we want, wherever we want, then you're probably going to be in a really tough place because we're still overstored in America. There's too many places to buy too much of the same stuff. And unremarkable retail just isn't going to live much longer. Yeah, I think one of the things you said there that resonates with me, there's uh, too much of the same. I think when you have a unique offering, that is something that is a differentiator. And there's a lot of people that are trying to compete on the same offering. And that, that's I think that's why... One of the reasons the D to C and the some of these digitally native brands have grown so much. It, it take a company like Duluth Trading. I'm pretty certain that there's nowhere else you can buy Duluth Trading products other than Duluth stores or online or in their catalog. And so I think the more that has right, the different the different product than everyone else. If you're selling the same thing as everyone else, then it's one of two things: you're either going to compete on price or you're going to compete on the brand. But you know, you set yourself apart when you actually have a, a product or service that everybody else doesn't have. And, and it, I, I think that's part of the reason that the D to C guys have grown so much because they have something that a lot, no one else has. Uh, when you really can only buy it in that company's channels, I think that is, you know, they're really protecting the brand. And we can see that, right? Nike just came off of Amazon, right? They were on Amazon. Now they're not. Nike got rid of a, a significant amount of retail partners because they're protecting the brand. And I think, you know, there's good and bad to that. But when you have a, a product that's different and you can't get anywhere else, uh, it's compelling. So Well, and the customer is now telling us, spoil me or else. And yeah. I want it yesterday. And that's that's really what it comes down to. Because that's what Amazon has set up the bar, right? So um, you you don't have a lot of wiggle room and you don't really know necessarily what that looks like, but you know when you don't get it, right? Yeah. Like I ordered something online and I don't know when it's going to ship and I don't know what's going to happen with the order. And so someone never thought through what Amazon and everybody else done, which is, oh, we got your order. Oh, it's shipped. Oh, it's here. Oh, you want to return it? Just put it in the bag and give it to these guys or send it or we'll come to you or whatever, they're still working on this 1980s model that the customer enjoys doing returns, enjoys finding a box and taping it up and putting it back, and it and it doesn't. And so it doesn't matter where you're a rural shopper or you're in a big city, that's, that's still more about like, well, we haven't really got our act together. And the problem is more and more brands have got their act together, right? Yeah. Well, listen, the last part of our segment is called Retail Wisdom. And I, and I have three questions that I ask everyone. So question one, best piece of commercial real estate advice out there? Spend more on your cam charges and don't, uh, don't, give all, don't make your retailers pay all of it. Curb appeal has never been greater. Every 
every shopper has seen HGTV. And they know what it looks like for Curbafeel and going sh- going cheap and going um, economical isn't going to make you money. Wow. Um, I like it. Next question. Question two. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead and why? Zero. Oh, come on. There's got to be one. What? I'm going to bring Radio Shack back. I'm going to bring Bonton. I'm going to bring Toys R Us. They were, Sears. They were all horribly executed brands for a number of years. There is nobody out there that I would be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I need to have. No, sorry. There's no pet point in going backwards. It's more important to think of, you know, who are the cool brands that are still doing it? And ultimately, a Lululemon, a Rituals. Uh, a container store, a lot of people who have invested in training and who have invested in knowing who they are, are doing great. So give me a brand or a company that is extinct, that you're surprised that they couldn't figure it out and they may, and they didn't make it. Amazon, just so ridiculous. So many bad choices made over decades you know, assuming that they were going to be able to weather everything. Uh, at the end of the day, they had the distribution model. They had the, the trucks. They had the stores. They had the value proposition. They had the locations. <laughs> you just tick off all the things they had. They had the catalog. They had all that customer data, for God's sake, that was relevant. And just understanding that would have made it. But I remember going to NRF 20 years ago, probably 10 years ago, and they had come out with a thing called Shop Your Way. It was going to be their own little social site. And it was going to do all these things. And such a distraction from everything they should have been seeing. You know, that's the that's the key. So, yeah. And Pennies could have easily filled that void just as well because they had catalogs. They had, I mean, all of the resources that everyone else had to build out now, right? Walmart, uh, Amazon, et cetera. They had in place. And they, all their distribution centers were right there by the freeway. I mean, all of it was uh, just disregarded and uh, people protecting their own thing instead of thinking about the customer. Where were they changing? Okay. I'm gonna, I'm adding to my retail wisdom. Who is remarkable today? You mentioned unremarkable. Who is remarkable and why? Rituals why? is a remar- remarkable brand. Cosmetic skincare company out of the Netherlands. They are amazing. Uh, I think Warby Parker does a really great job. I think they understood who their customer was, their store design is brilliant. I love when you go by their store, they have in the floor, like a tile uh, mosaic uh, welcome mat, and it says, nice to see you again, which works on so many levels why it's brilliant to put that in the mall as you walk in. And their store design is second to none. And they have well-trained employees, and they understand the modern consumer, and ultimately can, can deliver on that promise. I think it's great. Don't get me wrong, there are there are million uh, beautiful stores out there. You know, I just came from New York and a million beautiful stores. Um, actually, I was just in one yesterday called Slow Moo Institute. So this woman uh, and their two partners uh, decided that they wanted to do something with slime. Did you know slime is the uh, was the topic most searched on YouTube in 2017? Yeah. I and there's a whole slime actually. culture. Huh? Yes, I'm familiar. So she's got this whole store. You go in, you pay $45 a person, and you and your kid can go through and make slime. And there's 40 different kinds, and you can walk on it, and you can play with it, you can take it home. And then there's all kinds of products you can take home with it. But that experiential retail isn't just a matter of like, oh, come to us and play. 
there's a serious retail component, which is helping them make the numbers. And so they're actually looking um, to go out into the suburbs because it's a it's an easy concept to duplicate. And uh, it's kind of like a much more interactive version of the paint uh, your pottery, right, stuff. Sure. It's a lot more kid-centric. And also they've noticed that if you play with slime, you're more focused. So it's helping kids and parents understand that un- unhooking, I mean, they're right on the right trends because everybody seems to be looking at how do we get my kids back from the uh, deep dive of digital. Yes, this is question three. The others were just like sub-questions. So I ask everybody, I pick a retail product, and I ask them to name the retail price of that product. And, <laughs> and, and, like and, milk for presidential candidates? All right, go ahead. Oh, it's way more obscure products. So one, one of the hot skincare brands out there is Body Mary. The 3.4 ounces of Body Mary Retinol Surge Moisturizer. What does that retail for? You're probably in the thirty-four to twenty-nine dollar would be my guess if it's so a value on, brand. On Body Mary's website, it is uh, it normally retails at twenty-one ninety-nine, and you can buy it for twenty ninety-eight. Body Mary Surge Moisturizer. Look up. You should a, look up the is brand. Is that a sponsor of yours? Is that all? No, zero yeah. sponsorship. <laughs> no. I, I, I would you're, say you're they're lucky. You're, you're, you're lucky. One one guest had to guess what the Retail price of Snoop Dogg's new cookbook from Crook to Cook was retailing at. <laughs> I'd still say that's probably in the $29 range. Uh, no, it's, it's less, uh, but you should. Uh, I'm, I still haven't read it, but I just for fun, I think I need to get this Snoop Dogg cookbook from Cook to from Crook to Cook. So there you go. Well, listen, Bob, it's been great. Thanks for the conversation and your insights. Uh, keep rocking and enhancing the store experience by, you know, really enhancing the associate skills in the store. I think that's great. And thanks for the story about Howard and Phil's. Uh, I hadn't heard of that Western Wear retailer and uh, uh, giving us perspective of how the store associates get the store open. So really cool. All right, my friend. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. If you guys want to find out more about me, go to retaildoc.com. You can find me on LinkedIn with my 400,000 other followers. You could go through and understand SalesRx, my online training. And more importantly, just ask yourself how many of the customers that should have been yours walked out the door today? Because if you're not asking that question, you're probably asking the wrong questions. How's that, Chris? Good. Bob, why don't you plug your website? What's your website? Retaildoc.com. Dot com R-E-T-A-I-L-D-O-C.com, or just search for Bob Fibs and P-H-I-B-B-S, and you will find hundreds of articles about me. So, um, again, there's no retail apocalypse, and uh, you've got to find the hope to change what you can change, and more importantly, understand it's got to all dwell from how is your customer changing, and then you'll be successful. All right. Thanks so much, Bob. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you're a retailer, broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E at D-L-C-M-G-M-T.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.